How's it going? Pretty good, how are you? I'm doing all right. I had a pretty long weekend in the political world. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, before we get into that, I wanted to mention a um, little bit of feedback from our last episode, and I have an explanation for it. I definitely kind of dominated that conversation, and my explanation is alcohol. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I was drinking. So, I was drinking on the first one. I, I wasn't drinking the last one, but... Are you drinking on this one? <laughs> no, it's a little early in the day for that. Exactly. So I yeah. think I'm not, I am I am not drinking either. So I think we have a chance at having a more reasonable conversation. Although when you and I don't drink, we do sometimes kind of sound like we're on quaaludes, which is sort of fucked up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was I was thinking about that just now. I was like, okay, I wanted the the energy level feel like, but but so so be it. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't feel dominated or anything last time. I, I yeah. <laughs> Well, some people said I dommed you, and I apologize for it. I <laughs> wasn't trying to dom you, buddy. I was just excited, and rum had a lot to do with that excitement. That's 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 how I feel usually. Yeah, no, uh, no, I mean, that's all good with me, man. Um, but yeah, I, I am curious to talk about. Um, so you announced that you're you're running for city council, Rakeda. Yeah, I'm running for. Uh, so there's one vacant seat right now. And then there are two people who are up for re-election who are incumbents, one of whom has been an incumbent for uh, since 2008. The other one's been in and out for quite a long time, too. Um, and they're also of an older generation. And the two seats that are uh, locked down for at least a couple years are people who are of my generation, more or less. So it's a lot of talk. And I, I do want to mention Arcata, California is a small town. We're talking 18,000 people with the college. And uh, yeah. we have Humboldt State University. So we're in the state university system. And it's the northernmost one too. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a strange thing. I, I was approached by local media because of a Facebook post I made. So if you think shit posting can't get you places, children, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I did an interview with the Lost Coast Outpost, and immediately I had enough people contact me because of that interview to get all the signatures I needed within a day, which made me feel pretty good about my chances nice. on that. Um, but it was weird because it's the whole COVID thing, you know, like the first day I, I, I so I made two lists. I made health compromised people for the first day. So I wore like really heavy duty protection gear, including like an actual respirator that I have for doing carpenter work, carpentry work uh-huh. and such. Yeah. You know, cause I really, the last thing I want to do is kill my constituents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then sorry, just, I mean, showing that effort too is like a sign of goodwill for sure. Uh, yeah. It's good faith as opposed to the title of this podcast, bad faith. <laughs> right. Um, and so that, and that went well and pe- people weren't too put off by it. I did run into the issue of it's when you were wearing a respirator, it's very hard to hear. <laughs> uh, it's, it's hard to project your voice and older people sometimes are hard of hearing. Yeah. So that we, I had to shout a couple times in the respirator to uh, get, <laughs> get them to hear me, which <laughs> kind of made me sound like a, um, like a angry stormtrooper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, which is not not the look I'm going for as a politician. <clears throat> no, that's a little, yeah, it's a little challenging. 
uh yeah i mean old people what, like they use like your you see your mouth and stuff they're like right you know reverting to more animalistic status is like i can't hear you i can't see you you're making me uncomfortable right you know uh, and uh, anyone who knows me knows that i'm kind of an italian speaker i use a lot of hand <laughs> hand gestures when i talk i oh, i got i like to go big yeah no totally but that's i mean congratulations that's 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 good to hear that and that you got all the support that was necessary to get on the in a thing. And then so I'm seeing that there's like a couple other people that maybe are vying for the same vacant seat, but it seems like that most of y'all are kind of politically in the same kind of wheelhouse potentially. Yeah. So this is what we have going on so far. Um, and, and the, it's, so it's a little confusing. Arcade is so small. You're technically a council person at large. So there are three shots, but it's obviously going to be much harder to do unseat an incumbent. So as you mentioned, it's yeah. really the one vacancy. It's kind of like the one everyone's eyeballing. There was a young lady named uh, Sarah Schaefer who announced in the wake of my announcement um, mm-hmm. later that day. I think there had been a mention that it maybe was related. Like she read my announcement was like, oh, shit, I should announce that I want to do this, too, because I've been <laughs> planning on doing this. Uh-huh. But uh, as far as I know right now, we're the only two who have actually announced but there are people I've spoken to. I got a friend who's running a campaign that I don't know how much of it is tongue in cheek, but he definitely gotcha. doesn't plan on even having like a, a candidate statement. And he's, he's it's going to be sort of an esoteric campaign. So we'll see how well he does there. And I spoke to the city clerk and she said that 14 people had taken out paperwork, but no one had returned any yet. Interesting. So, there's yeah, a, a deadline to get that in. The deadline is August seventh, which I got all my signatures. Now I just have to craft a candidate statement, um, and then I have to pony up the dough to print that mm-hmm. uh, statement in English and Spanish, which I'd like to do. They had an option for Hmong too. We do have a Hmong population here, but I've, every Hmong person I've know in the Humboldt County area speaks English as well. So I was just kind of thinking maybe I don't need this in Hmong as well, but. Uh huh. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Sorry, guys, if I did that. No, I mean, that seems, I mean, it seems, uh, it seems like the opposite of being like patronizing, you know, in this case, because like I said, most among people have been humble that I've met as well. Like, yeah, they speak English. They're not, they're not, uh, yeah. they're, they're, they're several generations in, you know? Right. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's just kind of the general, general thing there. So, but there are people who maybe, could utilize the Spanish translation, certainly, you know, certainly, that would help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to be inclusive in that regard. And so I got to pony yep. that up and then I got to sign a few forms that basically say, I promise not to be a dickhead, you know, like, mm-hmm. or call people dickheads. Right. Um, Have some decorum. Yeah. Um, can't do the Trump thing. <laughs> no. Um, what was, I'm curious what the, uh, what the old Facebook post was that got someone to notice you? Was it a oh, was it a good or a bad one? It was a good one. It was actually pretty benign. <laughs> I had been I had been talking to people for a while about running for city council. It all uh-huh. started with one of my. Uh, whenever I go on Facebook, I do what everyone does on Facebook, which is act like a boomer. That's really what you do. It's <laughs> it is the boomer platform, and mm-hmm. I've always said that if you're on Facebook, you're technically a boomer. So. That's why I'm allowed to tease them because I'm one of them. Partaking in boomer, yeah. Yeah, I'm drinking. I'm drinking down their their 
sweet, delicious. <laughs> um, sorry, someone. I'm recording this on my phone, and someone tried to call me at an opportune time. Oh, yeah. So uh, originally, I had just gotten into some shenanigans with my uh, some claim that I'd made and some angry leftist tirade that a bunch of people paid attention to. And then someone was like, well, why don't you run for office? And this sort of oh, guy, uh-huh. who, yeah, has always been bothering me. I actually ended up unfriending him because he said that I, I share guillotine memes, which I, I never do. I've always pointed out that the French Revolution is a fucking bourgeois revolution, and it mostly killed the peasants and the rural clergy. So I, that's just not my nature. But he was, always, mm-hmm. he was always dragging me and trying to get me to do something. He's a little crazy, I think. And, and so I was like, well, maybe I fucking will, but I'm broke right now. And then I, <laughs> one of the uh, local newspaper editors chimed in saying like, well, you know, it's We'll run, we'll run your statement for free and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you get X amount of money a month and benefits and stuff like that. So immediately, I'm, I'm not going to lie, and this is going to tie into our later conversation. I was immediately yeah. like, well, I could just do it for the money, which is not much. <laughs> I, could, I could do it for the dental because I haven't been to a dentist in 20 years, you know. Sure. Like that. But that's what got me well, thinking. And then I, I made a, a post, how, hey, if I ran, would you vote for me? And that's what kind of took off. And that's how they, right. I got the interview and all that. Right on, right on. Yeah, I've received yeah, this, this support from all our friends and stuff. And it's like, yeah, of course I would. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, you've been vocal, like you say, on Facebook for a while as far as posting politically, kind of, you know, getting people riled up a little bit, I'd say. But, like, because you have an interesting, like, audience that you're speaking to as far as, like, the younger and then these these older people, you know, in your community that, you know, I don't even personally know or whatever. And it's, it's interesting to see the engagement in the back and forth. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the last three years. I was a live music and culture writer for our weekly paper here, the North Coast Journal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said some pretty polemical shit there, in, including at one point right. calling for a general strike. <laughs> uh, which they thought I was crazy at the time, but you see the protests now. Uh huh. I feel like yeah. I feel like an American Cassandra. I'm being right. I'm being uh, you know vindicated. No, certainly. Yeah, no kidding. You know. <clears throat> and then so I mean, when is so you have to draft up your your candidacy proposal basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and when what does that look like? Is that like a page kind of a thing, a statement, so to speak? Yeah, it's a statement of essentially what you are looking for policy-wise. And so mm-hmm. my whole point is like, I don't necessarily, I'm developing my platform. So when I went and got the signatures, I talked to everybody. And I said, what are your yeah. concerns in the community? And it's funny, there were two reoccurring concerns that I heard uh, across the board. Number one being, the rent is too damn high. And also, it's a pandemic, you greedy assholes, can you... Uh, pass a rent control and to be clear greedy assholes is directed at landlords could we pass some sort of uh rent control or could we pass maybe a a rent reduction and a permanent moratorium on evictions until covid is you know indefinite moratorium until covid's out of here because this is already a pretty tough place to live the amount of money you can make versus what rent is is pretty out of whack here uh, and there's students who live in cars and such. And I, I spoke to two young ladies who they're, they had to move because their landlord had raised their rent two months into, into the quarantine. Whoa. Yeah. That, who the that fuck seems, does that? That seems highly illegal, but probably not. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, so the, the, that's the way you just said that 
That was my mm-hmm. exact response. And then the last weekend has been me drinking rum and trying to read through city charter to figure out, <laughs> is that file illegal? And you know what? There's so much gray area. Our only rent control law that got passed in the last you know, decade had to do with the mobile home parks having a, a rent control. And so, and it's so funny when you start researching rent control as policy, the first things that pop up in a Google search are usually like, is rent control actually bad for tenants? So it's like, okay, the bosses <laughs> wrote that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so that's one of two issues. The other one being defunding the police, which is also kind of a thorny thing here. And I can go into why that is. Uh, you've sure, lived here. I mean, yeah, yeah. And I would imagine I can think of a couple of reasons, but why don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the big things about this big cities that have these massive police's budgets and massive police forces is the it's not community policing argument, which is a valid argument, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have people in New York City who live in a different county and move in, you know, come in as cops. And so they're not yeah. taking care of their neighborhood. Well, that's not really the issue in Arcata because everyone lives here. So we do have community policing. So it's not just as simple as it is in the bigger cities. The one thing we have in common with the larger cities, though, is that our police budget versus many of our other budgets is staggeringly high. City of 18,000 people, would you care to guess what our police budget was for the 2018-2019 fiscal year? Um, I guess like $200,000. Oh, you sweet young lad. You, you, <laughs> You sweet, naive young lad. 6.2 million, roughly. Holy fuck. Okay, About 5.5 yeah, yeah. million of that. And I, I'm, okay, so I'm not going exact numbers. I'm, I'm you know, just leveling yeah, off the so. dollars. <laughs> uh, but most of that salary, you know, 18 full-time cops for a town of 18,000. That averages up to like, you know, like 370 bucks per person in the city. Yeah, duh, sure. Every uh-huh. year for the mm-hmm, cost of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, our parks budget, on the other hand, is like, you know, sitting around half a mil for wh- who they pay, you know, and most of our other budgets, it's teetering around like a million, million three, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The whole city operating budget is about 41 million. So like a whole seventh of it is just right to what they call public safety, right? Which is really the police department. Yeah. So I went and sorry, go on. No, go for it. Yeah. Uh, so I went and investigated a bunch of different places that have different community policing solutions. There's like Eugene, Oregon, for instance, has a setup where you call the cops. And if it's like a nonviolent thing, if it's not like, you know, something dangerous or whatever, they send someone who's trained in conflict de-escalation and who's trained in mediation and who has uh, links to social services that are appropriate for the issue, okay. um, which we could do here. And we, we could, since the line item for the police department is literally public safety, it doesn't say police. If you look up this Arcata City budget, it, then you could really kind of like, you could flex that quite a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. You yeah. Could, you can work with that, uh, stretch that to right. the definition there. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking of around here, we have a lot of people who either have mental health issues or like publicly intoxicated. And it's the same like handful of people who gather around our our town square, the plaza and get fucked up and then have to go to jail. Mm -hmm. 
And I was thinking, well, instead of spending all that administrative money just to put someone in the criminal justice system and driving them to the county jail, which is like all the way across the bay, which takes up resources, police time, all that shit, right? How's about we have some kind of like a localized drunk tank that isn't in the criminal justice system? You know, you, 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 yeah. you can just, you can sleep this off. You can be monitored in case you have a health scare while you're in there. And uh, it's got to be better than being in fucking lockup in the county jail, right? I was thinking maybe we could, that would save some money long-term, you know? Absolutely. I mean, so they just, I guess if that's how that happens, you get sent over to Eureka and to hang out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then you I get released saying, at weird hours. Yeah, sorry, go on. Right. No, totally. I mean, that's that's something that historically that I've just heard about Humboldt County. That I don't know, I don't know to what degree this is true, but that you know, back in the day, even in the '60s and '50s and stuff, that they would, uh, you know, psychiatric patients in the Bay Area or other places would just get you know get given a Greyhound ticket or whatever and get sent up to Humboldt County to kind of like get fall into just kind of like you know get out of town kind of situation yeah. and also just kind of like deal with it up here which then kind of created this uh this mental health kind of crisis situation that seems to mm-hmm. exist in humble in terms of uh there's a lot of social services available but it's like it seems incredibly str- like strained um you know what i mean yes it is there's the one main uh uh place institution in eureka called semper virens that is essentially the um uh, you know what people would colloquially call the nut house but it's the place where people who are having mental health issues go i'm not using mm-hmm. that all right anyone who wants to get angry at me for using the term i'm not i'm just saying what the locals would call it i'm not saying what i'm calling it just, but oh, anyway yeah. uh, <laughs> uh and you know it doesn't help that like republican austerity in california killed a lot of programs for mental health issues for people with mental health issues and just really like gutted that whole thing. Thanks Reagan. Um, and you know, it's just, we've had, we've created some pretty shitty politicians. I mean, Reagan's technically from Minnesota, but I think of him as a California politician. Are are the, the, the two California presidents, Nixon and Reagan were also garbage politicians before they were in the national stage and they did terrible things here. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, I've heard definitely that thing that you were mentioning about people. And it, I don't know how apocryphal it is or not, but people getting shipped here from other communities. And I've, I've definitely, you know, that certainly can be the case. But then you see a lot of the same repeat offenders, and, and some of them are people that you know, no, yeah, from high school or sure, yeah. totally. I feel like that's something that maybe doesn't happen, maybe quite as much. But then, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's obviously a, that's obviously a terrible thing. But on the other hand, and I'm, I'm trying to maybe have silver lining or like something that can lend itself to more of like a community oriented style, um, mm-hmm. you know, gr- uh, form of help. Because um, also just like you said, like the people who aren't necessarily, you know, fully um, in need of like psychiatric treatment, but are, you know, in the drunk tank and on the plaza and these yeah. kind of people. And I almost feel like there almost is already a kind of an informal with like what, uh, that woman, you know, the, the, you know, the previously, I'm imagining homeless woman who kind of monitors the plaza, right? And she kind sunflower. Of, yeah, she keeps everyone in line, and you know, and she moved like away. Kind of a narc or whatever, you know, and but, <laughs> yeah, allegedly. Right. I mean, I, so she moved away. So, so there's no more sheriffs yeah. downtown anymore, I guess. But you know, also, it's like 
just for a little piece of local flavor so people know who Kit's talking about, <laughs> our, our, our plaza used to be monitored by a woman who – there's all kinds of stories about her. We don't really know her name. She went by Sunflower. She'd be wearing very new clothes a lot, often Iron Maiden clothes, often like starter jackets. Yeah, like she had a cool beast. outfit look. Yeah, she, she looked cool. There was rumors she was an arc. I don't know. She was always nice to me. Um, yeah. But she would definitely try to patrol and police some of the rowdier people there. And uh, I've seen her take her teeth out <laughs> and call somebody something that I'm not going to repeat on this <laughs> format uh, and get them to calm down what they were doing mm-hmm. um, pretty quickly. And so I don't think that that's a, a policing model that maybe I could take as a, as an official thing, but it was sort of a semi-official form of, uh, no, yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying like some, something in between those two things, right. Almost, um, yeah. Or in between this kind of like, where that's just like completely a little bit too chaotic as far as informality of the, <laughs> but but you know something like yeah. that because it because it's because like one the need is there the people are there you know and yeah and it's kind of like a situation is like build it and they will come as far as a uh, something of it's like a self help not self help in the you know new agey sense but you know something which people can help themselves and like kind of right uh, or not help themselves but you know be be you know uh it's the word i'm looking for here but like you know supportive in a way that is um sure. given given opportunity to situations that'll you know help them whatever you know without it being right. this, like, just simple discipline and punish you know okay you go in the drunk tank get back out and the guy get released at three o'clock in the morning and have to like wander around like yeah many of those people lived in the building i used to live in in eureka and stuff and it was just mm-hmm. you know, seeing them go through their their trials and tribulations is just like man i mean it's it's just it's almost made to just kind of be on repeat in this like cycle and you know that yeah, everyone involved it, it has, is just like yeah. this is bullshit this is bullshit okay hey hey it's you again okay come on oh okay you know it's like it's one of those situations where everyone knows each other like you said it is community policing so mm-hmm. yeah yeah it, it's exactly what you're describing and sometimes it has tragic consequences like for instance father eric freed I think it's Freed was his name. Yeah. Uh, mm, yeah. He was murdered by a man who was released from the correctional facility who then walked over to uh, the Catholic church in Eureka and got into the building somehow. I, I think he killed him in the rectory and he, he beat him to death. And I think the man was allegedly on meth psychosis, meth- methamphetamines in the midst of the psychosis when it happened. Wow. And uh, you know, don't let that person out on the street at fucking three in the morning. You know, like mm-hmm. it's not like they don't know what they're doing. Every once you get into the system, every step yeah. of the way is punitive. It's punitive leverage against you. We'll give you little special considerations if you act nice, and if you don't act nice, we're going to take away what few privileges you have now that you're in jail. Uh, yeah, and then you're on a short just, short leash, basically, and they they know absolutely. You're kind of like. That's the, that's the sense in which like uh, Sunflower was a narc, right? It's like she was like one of the first yeah. ones to come under the fold, and then it's like, it's like, well, we know you're just going to be here, getting in trouble over and over again. So if you want us to kind of leave you alone, can you just kind of watch some of these people so they stop doing some of this crazy shit? Just like, fine, okay, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so that's you're just kind of become on this like short leash because you're not being helped and put in any kind of a situation to actually like get yourself out of this cycle, you know? Right. But but you're, they're like, oh, well, you're useful to us in this cycle though or you make us money or you can get some information or you're whatever you know what i mean yeah i wonder how that fits into the foucault model of i i'm i'm not as well read on foucault as some people i'm probably not as well as you 
but the whole discipline punish concept my whole Foucault thing is I just joke about the panopticon actually turning out to be a glory hole which is not a funny <laughs> actually that's pretty funny but um because I I knew I was introduced to Foucault by a man who was a family friend a very close friend who was a, a gay man and you know a very funny gay man from a bygone era when people were maybe a little bit less uptight about things and he used to joke about how just much of a freak he was in terms of his personal life you know um, Foucault for sure yeah yeah, as taste. So that that was where I developed that joke. It's not meant to be like a homophobic hatred thing. It's literally no, it's, it's good, my it's dear like a, departed friend. Yeah, came up with that one. It's uh, <laughs> I almost I don't know. It's giving me some kind of like a metaphorical imageries in my mind because like the panopticons like that you know it's like this pillar like object in the middle, almost phallic, yeah. standing in the center that can see all sides around it. But if it's a glory hole, it's kind of a a. Uh, <laughs> you're all standing around it you know like uh-huh. coming yeah. into this into this well maybe and then like like poisoning the well kind of a concept it's an inversion because it's, yeah it's, it's, an an, inversion. it's yeah it's the inversion because it's like but, but the panopticon is basically similar it's like we're all just like monitoring one another you know what i mean and that's the, the degree mm-hmm. to which like i mean it's sound it just makes like you know right wingers there's people who are like oh that's very 1984 or something but it's like you know, mm-hmm. as far as having like kind of community monitoring or something, but it's kind of like, well, what, what do you want instead? Do you want like a formalized big brother? Like, no, what, what right you... wingers want instead is they just want to kill the people who are the problem. <laughs> yeah. Right. They just want to. <laughs> yeah. True. Problem solved. They're dead or I don't have to look <clears throat> at them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very much. Yeah. So. But you raise a good point there. And um, just to finish my thought as well, which I think you might find this funny. I was thinking one of these days we could go through some of those old YouTube clips of uh, Jean Fou- uh, Michel Foucault speaking on uh, maybe speaking to like Noam Chomsky, that famous debate or something mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. and just change the translation on the bottom. So you realize he's just slowly describing some sort of like sex dungeon. <laughs> talking about the like just literally type in your own That'd be thing good. there. I mean, yeah. Um, and again, this is just, I won't name him on the podcast, but a dear departed friend of mine who essentially was a gay man right through the AIDS crisis and lived through a time when being a homosexual was essentially like you marked, you know, a lot of your friends are dying or whatever, Mm -hmm. had a uh, fantastic sense of humor and used to joke about how much of a freak Foucault was. So that's, it's coming from a place of love. I'm not trying to be homophobic or anything. No, he truly was a freak. Um, I mean, he was, yeah. People commit, yeah. Many people who who really like Foucault have made these comments. I think as far as like his whole thing was fist, fisting, I believe was, was. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it speaks Boy, to it speaks yeah, to so, kind so of his philosophy a cool fan. too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Okay, so let's uh, but, let's circle yeah, back a little bit. But yeah, circling <laughs> back. I mean, I guess I just wanted to finish out some details in terms of um, like so. I guess when I guess we'll just kind of keep tabs on they said the seventh is when things need to get done you're gonna be working on your thing and then yeah Yeah. i mean i guess when when is the election time i'm just curious i guess um it is going to be the same as the november election so i will be on the ballot assuming i turn in all my paperwork and i don't just shit the bed on this i'll be on the ballot for the november election which is what the first tuesday in november so which I always like to tell people there's two Friday the 13th in 2020. The first one was in March when COVID hit. And the second one is going to be in November. 
So those of you who are on the (laughs) superstitious side out there, holy moly. My other joke is when people ask me why I'm running, it's because I want something to be, I want to be happy about something in November (laughs) when the results come in. So yeah, and it would be nice if, as we continue this podcast and we talk about religion and philosophy and politics, we could maybe have it be sort of like a, this is the year that I'm running and here's the things that are going and here's the things that are fucking up. It's been, yeah, yeah, it's been an extremely, uh, just, I mean, momentous and like everything's changing. There's constantly something going on every single day. It's like very, uh, I don't know. It feels like, What's that like? What's that that uh, quote that Zizek always quotes of like the Chinese, you know, uh, kind of thing? Or just like, may you live in interesting times or whatever. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. We're definitely yeah, some living years in those... feel like a decade. Some decades mm-hmm. feel like a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that's another. I mean, yeah, just even that the the time, missing time, kind of time dilation, weird experiences of time. I mean, I've been my sleep schedule's been pretty fucked up from everything and just not having a normal schedule mm-hmm. to some degree and you know, waking up at midday and it's like, man, what the hell? Like, okay, the day's gone already. And Yeah. Yeah. So I've actually been addressing that because of the disorienting nature of COVID. I've been trying to stick to a certain schedule, which I'm various degrees of successful at. It used to be don't drink before 5 p.m. Now it's just don't drink during the weekdays and uh try mm-hmm. to log in and do something even if it's just shit posting even if it's just reading and that kind of brings us to uh something that i feel like we are it's worth talking about because this is an idea i've been wanting to develop and, and talk about more which is uh people who know me know that i'm actually a religious person i am a practicing catholic uh don't hold it against me i'm not one of them which is that's always the boilerplate that you put out there. I'm not one of those Catholics. It's like, well, in some ways I am, some ways I'm not. Yeah, right. Uh, but there is a piece of literature from that's basically non-canonical, but about as close to being canonical as a non-canonical work can be, uh, by Dante Alighieri called Dante's Inferno, where he correctly identifies that the world of politics and religion are in inextricably linked particularly when you're talking about the inferno because it's the divine comedy you know there's the three spots purgatorio uh paradiso and of course the one that's the most famous inferno um and uh kit you mentioned you're reading it yeah well yeah we had i mean uh you made a comment about it or something and then i had picked up the book I think seeing it somewhere, I forget exactly where. Um, and I was just like, oh, I mean, I just need to grab this. I think I thought I saw it at the mm-hmm. store or something, you know. And, uh, and then I saw you made some kind of comment about it. I was like, oh, yeah, how, you know, as auspicious and timely and weird as things are, I was like, yeah, how, it makes sense that I would have uh, found this right now and everything. And then maybe a month or so passes by. And a uh, month or two, maybe we've been in COVID, I guess. And then I've just been, uh, I've been reading a lot about the you know, Catholic you know, history of the Catholic mm-hmm. church and Roman empire and stuff like that lately. And, you know, I'm realizing that it's been, it's helping me like just, it's uh, giving me like the context that I'm needing to yeah. understand uh, the story. And um, so I just kind of started, you know, opened it up last night and actually started getting Good. into it. And uh, it felt, yeah, it felt like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I definitely should be reading this right now. Uh, it feels 
very synchronistic and timely. Um, and so it was definitely a, yeah, it feels like it's, um, it's reminded me of a bunch of things I've been watching lately too, even of just kind of these like initiation kind of um, seeker on a path kind of a, Right. I've been noticing some of your Twitter habits have kind of been reflecting that. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I watched, I watched just a couple weird movies like just a born of fire. And then, uh, which is, I don't even know why I picked it. It was just like a late night weird one. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this other one with uh, David Carradine and Christopher Lee called uh, circle of iron. Mm -hmm. And I guess that that was supposed initially it was uh, written by Bruce Lee, <laughs> but he died. And then it, it was supposed to be kind of a reflection of his, you know, Zen philosophy, I guess. But then uh, he died somewhere midway through the production of the writing yeah. of the story. And so the writers picked it up and uh, kind of mm-hmm. reworked it. And it has a very kind of a, you know, Freemasonic or like, uh, uh, what's that? What's Fantasia based like upon again? Like Faust, you know, it's kind of a Faust. Yes. Uh, story almost. Or yeah. Something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Faustian. But but go on as far as uh, the Dante because yeah, I mean, I like so I said, I'm kind of a. This is something coming at it fresh. And, this is something I'd like you and I to continue to read and develop in the source of this in the uh, in in the um, tongue tied. Pardon me. So this is what happens when I don't drink. This is. This is the cool, the cruel face of sobriety, dear listeners. Um, hey, hey, okay. So okay, so we got disconnected there for a second, but um. All right, so Dante. Yeah, we were talking about Dante, and so a political philosophy that I am. I have developed through most of the last, I don't know, it's, it's been a slow ride, but I'd say last couple of decades of my life has to do with the idea that the spiritual realm, the spiritual world, uh, as well as on the earthly plane, the religious world, there's a difference between the two. Um, the religious world and, and what wrote religiosity means and religious devotion means, and the political realm are not only inextricably linked but have um, much more power and energy behind them than human beings, the average citizen really wants to acknowledge. And what really got me thinking about that was when I first read Plato's Republic, because it starts off with the line, I went down to the Piraeus to see the festival for a new god. And Plato's Republic exists in a uh, uh, fashion where the narrative literally goes to a descent and a rising and a descent. There, there's a there's a process where he is physically, Socrates, and um, what's the other gentleman's name? It'll come to me later. I'll I'll bring it up. But Socrates and his his young cohort. Is it Al- it's not Alcibiades. No, 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 no. I, uh, I'm not good with the Greek names, remembering them, because it's not like, oh, dude, it's Kevin. Or you're thinking of Stephen. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it on the wall. Anyway, <laughs> the, the, uh, I have it around in the house somewhere. I'm, I'm on the spot right now. We're going to talk about this more. So 
I'm not worried about it. Yeah. Right now, I'm not worried but, about the exact small things, the details. Sure. But, but the idea is that, like, he's going down to the market trading place, which is really important mm-hmm. to see a festival for a new god that was sort of spontaneously invented by the people, right? And that sure. right there says everything that I'm trying to articulate about the relationship that we have between the religious world and the political world. And where it gets woo-woo for a lot of people, probably rightly so, is when you then try to reconcile that with the spiritual world. And that is where you find Dante's Inferno. Because he lived at a time in Florentine politics where you had the Guelphs, I think they were. I call them Guelphs, which is just because I'm a jerk. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I've been internet poisoned like anyone else. I'm not a big porn guy. I've never been a porn guy, but I'm familiar with porn terms just from using Twitter. That should tell you how terrible the internet is. Um, Yeah, poison. Right. I'm a practicing Catholic, so like I really don't do the porn thing. But I do do know the terminology because of Twitter. So, and so, yeah, the Gelfs and uh, what the fuck was the name of the other? Anyway, the point being the Gelfs were the ones who I believe had an alliance with the or an allegiance to the pope and then the other side had an allegiance to the holy roman emperor which at the time was a very schismatic relationship between those two power hubs and so Uh when dante goes to hell with the poet virgil who wrote the roman version of the odyssey essentially the aeneid or whatever he encounters people who are people he knew who in his family's you know connections who are in hell which imagine if you could shitpost your way if you could write a shitpost poem epic poem and tell somebody that oh yeah dude your dad that guy who pissed me off a bunch when he's alive he's in hell now <laughs> and not only were right. they in hell but many of the characters that you find in the political realm were in the eighth circle of hell the eighth and even the ninth, the lowest circles, the, the, the bad, the bad place, the bad uh-huh. place to put it in, you know, that show or whatever. <laughs> um, and there was a, the way that he describes the punishment and the geography of that, that place is extremely important and interesting. Yeah, I've I uh, I downloaded some some images too of uh, like old illustrations of the the different um, you know levels of hell too that is kind of interesting, yeah. kind of like a fascinating like old diagram to kind of you know read alongside with. Uh, yeah, and so I mean, is this is the suggestion? Uh, basically, you're you're saying like the you know the politicians in their or the politicians and the rulers and the emperors and stuff like that that they you know they hold a special place in hell because of uh because of what exactly is it because of their mendaciousness? Or? I'll tell you. There's uh so it, in the circle the eighth circle of hell with a connection by various bridges. There are these depressions or ditches that have been dug. And this is kind of a harrowing part of the narrative because at one point the, uh, the poet and the two poets almost get trapped in one of the ditches by being tricked by these, these devils that they believed uh, what they were saying, who were, who were, I'll get into that in a minute. But um, so in, in basically in the first ditch, you've got 
pimps and seducers who are being like whipped, which yeah, we can get into that. That's kind of funny, but, uh, um, and I'm looking at my notes right here. Um, and flatterers as well, who are being dipped in the excrement in the second ditch then shit basically in the second ditch. Mm-hmm. And then later on you have, uh, the fifth ditch I remember has political corruption, which is, which is kind of a, an issue for Dante because he himself in his lifetime was probably falsely charged with that. It was something that he had, he had, uh, faced, uh, uh, as, as I don't think he was ever punished for it, but I think he did face charges of it. Um, and then there's also hypocrisy, which is a big deal. But the one that I'm interested to talk about today is simony, the abuse of power and the selling of, of the church, the papal and church abuse of power the, and the selling of basically the acts of the Holy Spirit through uh, church abuse, essentially like selling grace. And the reason why it's named simony is because of the book of Acts, which I always encourage people to read in the summertime around Pentecost. And that's in the book of Acts, you have Simon Magus, who was a, he's described as a sorcerer or magician of some kind who converts. I think Paul and Peter convert him. And immediately upon conversion, he sees the acts that are being somewhat, I mean, just amazingly and supernaturally committed by Peter during the huge conversion push after, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, you know, it's left up the acts of the apostles. It's basically the second book of Luke. And it's basically like what we did afterwards, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the sequel. Uh, Yeah. And he sees these acts that Peter's doing and he immediately says, Holy shit, I'd pay any amount of money to know how to do that. And Peter immediately condemns him and says, man, I'm, of course, paraphrasing here, believe it or not, man, fuck you. This isn't for sale. So they ended up, yeah. imagine being so cool that not only are you in the Bible, but then they name a particular sin after you that is one of the worst you can imagine, which is essentially trying to sell the grace of the Holy Spirit, which is not tied to money in any way whatsoever, or to the physical manifestation of money and power and trying to buy or sell, you know, that, that kind of power. And, and simony, I think is the root of all of the problems that you have in the modern American Christian experience. Uh, Definitely in terms of, um, yeah, I mean the, the America and especially like America's version of Christianity. So tied to, to wealth and prosperity and, you know, justify, mm-hmm. justifying your wealth by being blessed or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff, like very insidious and pretty, I mean, it's like basically what I feel like a lot of people too, and in, in their atheistic turns are like railing against too, is this hypocritical, garish, you know, yeah. oafish stupidity, you know, just being like, this is so glaringly, apparently like hypocritical and stupid. Mm-hmm. You're just like a lying business owner guy who's just, you know, prejudice basically you know sometimes yeah. it's just so clearly like what's going on in such a cover um but yeah so i mean basically all these people are basically 
committing that. I mean, it's so. I mean, what is? I mean, what do you? What do you think? How do you define grace? I'm kind of wondering because is grace like? Grace is essentially the state uh, of being and the state of action when you're informed by divinity. In this case, it's it's the Holy Spirit who has. I think the largest hold in the imagination of the early apostles, more so than Jesus, because they knew Christ Jesus. That's the thing that you have to remember is that they knew him. They encountered him. They went with him. Some of them were willing to die for him. Some of them denied him and such, but they knew him intimately, as intimately as you can know another being. But it was the Holy Spirit that enabled everything that occurred. It was the, the, it's that flow, it's that flux, it's that being that, that, that is God. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's part of the mystery of the triune God, where you've got, in the name of the Father, the Son, mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit. Spiritus Sancti, it, it's this ineffable presence. So to define grace is very difficult. It's one of those things like, do you know when like you, you see a masterpiece in art, or you, you hear a, a, a masterpiece of music or something, and then the moment you try to define what it is is when you start getting really lost in the woods, you know? Like, how, why sure. is this masterpiece? How do I define this? That's sort of what grace is. It's sort of like you know it. You instinctively know that yeah, it's correct okay. and right mm-hmm. and just. But then you, it's sort of ineffable in terms of what its, what its boundaries are. It's, it's, it's divinely informed behavior. That's interesting. That reminds me of something just in the very beginning of uh, the opening of it. Uh, and Dante was like, he's uh, talking about how he's basically talked himself into not doing the thing he decided he was going to do by like mm-hmm. coming up with all these things. Like, oh, am I worthy though? Like, are you sure? Are you sure about this? Uh, and then he kind of talks himself into this whole thing. And he, I think he even describes it something similar like that, where it's like he's like he's back in the woods again immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's not being, it's not informed by this just like, by grace, I guess, in this kind of, and I guess, I, is there, like, how do you parse, or, I guess it's a question like one has to basically just internally ask oneself. But how do you, how do you parse like what is grace and what is just like instinct or some kind of a, you know, mis, well, misinformed kind of a, yeah, you know, intuition or something. That's that's a tough one, and a lot of that has to do with what your actions are as a person, which is why the book of Acts is such a good instructive on the concept of grace, because the book of Acts are basically when the Holy Spirit has taken over for the role of Christ in the people who were shown to be very flawed in the Gospels, and they have to now take the budding birth of the new church, and they have to bring it to a fruition by proselytizing. And most of that proselytizing ended with extremely violent death and martyrdom. So to understand the difference maybe is one of the mysteries of faith and one of the lifelong life, yeah. lifelong mysteries. But I think one thing about it is it's almost universally recognizable, which is why it's so rare amongst humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see somebody else acting out of grace, you can, you can identify it if, it's something that doesn't seem to be tied to an incumbent. Um, how do I put this? An incumbent uh, sin or bad thing, you know, like you got. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is the reason why, uh, again, 
speaking of Dante's eighth circle of hell, the eighth and ninth, this is why hypocrisy is considered to be like such a serious crime. Because it's certainly if you are a Protestant, then you merely think, and I'm not saying all Protestants, hashtag not all Protestants, but like the idea is that it's not action that matters as much as just professing your, your love of God and your state, your place with God. But for the Catholics, it's like, it really has to be action too. You have to do these acts. And if not, then you are a hypocrite. And hypocrisy is considered to be a particularly vile sin. So if you can find something that's unadorned with hypocrisy and just seems to be the correct and just way, that could be something that could easily be considered as a candidate for uh, an action of grace. Um, and yeah, it is, it is a very difficult thing to interpret. It's very difficult to understand, yeah. but it, it absolutely exists in a metaphysical sense and it almost never exists in the political world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's like the runaway thing. I mean, I, I think of sin, I don't know when I looked this up a long time ago, but just like the sin etymologically or something means like, you know, missing the mark, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a simple way as if you were shooting an arrow or yeah. you had this intention and it's just, you just missed it, you know, kind of thing, which I feel like yeah. makes it, uh, it makes it like sound like, Oh, there's something you can try again then, or at least it, like, it's, it's not as damning, you know, per se. Um, and I understand that that's kind of the whole point, with, you know, with Jesus and being mm -hmm. redeemed and stuff, but, but um, something too that's like that's kind of way that's what I've been thinking about in some books I've been reading, and then going along with that and just kind of, you know, human actions done with that basically with you know completely in in, in just ignoring grace or the idea of, of anything like that, but it's just kind of like, um, and this is something that you know like the body electric and like like electric Jesus and all these kinds of concepts mm -hmm. like people are thinking come up with but you know like electricity and stuff like that and just like the nature of the world and the of um like i'm reading this book called uh invisible rainbow right now mm -hmm. and it's just it's basically like a the history of electricity and uh like like electromagnetics and stuff like that and like humans just um you know using telegram services and how we've you know gone on to affect the, the environment yeah. and stuff like that and this guy's obviously like an anti-cell phone guy um, he's, you know, he's not, he's not a quack though. He's definitely like a pretty like, well-researched dude, but, right. um, but it just, it, it, there's a metaphorical, like, I feel like through line in this kind of like Luciferian or the light bringer or, um, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of metaphorical line. And then like, right. The light bringer. Yeah. The electricity, the, the sparkle. Yeah. 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 And, and there was something in the beginning of Dante though, that I found, uh, kind of revealing or like, Oh, but it was basically that Virgil in a sense is kind of like that, you know, torch or light or something, you know, that he's following in a metaphorical sense. And also it's, uh, I think, not, I think Virgil says something where it's kind of like, you know, I'm of the same light or something, but I, you know, he's basically like a similar kind of cast down angel, you know, who mm -hmm. he challenged God, but God still like, you know, knows me and loves me. And I can bring you to God, but you just gotta like follow me there. Yeah, if I recall, I feel like Virgil was somebody who was recognized as a righteous pagan. Um, uh -huh. And I don't know if he's in the exact same category as the ones, because that's pretty much the first circle of hell. It's it's sort of like uh -huh. the land, and it's like a garden. 
and it's really pleasant, although the weather is never quite right, which reminds me of Humboldt County. Um, <laughs> and the land of the righteous pagan, which is sort of what I think of Humboldt County in a lot of ways, um, where in other words, it's people who are good. And meanwhile, he's Virgil was the national yeah. poet of the Roman Italian consciousness. You know, right. he was basically yeah. he was by design the Roman uh, um, uh, Homer. Uh-huh. And in as much as, you know, the, the Greco-Roman experience was the Romans basically biting off the Greeks and trying to build a civilization off of what had been prior the most pr- impressive civilization. Right. Um, and Catholicism certainly does that with pagan Rome, but it, there's a lot of inversions involved. And, and that's what Dante's Inferno speaks to a lot too, because you get down to a, a, a lot more detail and in that detail, the, the Greek concept of the monad is replaced by God, by the one God. And right. it's so funny how in the Inferno, and this is by design, of course, the, the, the thing that is missing from the dialogue the most is God when, when they are in hell. It's an unspeakable word in hell. But what isn't missed is layers and layers of uh meaning and 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 uh political figures whose character is meant to be there to express an idea the reason why this person's there is specifically to express a concept that dante alighieri was trying to get across um and i I think we should do a deeper dive into it because bear in mind you're reading it for the first time i'm coming off of memory right now from having read it over the years i think the first time i read it i was a kid because my parents had Mm -hmm. copies around i was lucky in that regard right right but it's just you know just off the off the shooting from the hip here remembering what i can um there is a so much detail in why certain figures are in which circle of hell that they are in and that almost reminds you of like the unending bureaucracy of religiosity at the time in his world, you know, that he lived yeah. in. Um, or just like the convoluted uh, compartmentalizing and layering that happens today in like secularized, quote unquote, uh, yeah. you know, society. And like how you were saying in the beginning of just how inextricably linked actually, though, mm-hmm. politics and spiritual religious concerns are. Right. Um, and that they aren't can't be thought of as being so separate but but yeah you, you know, can't this, separate this, them all these layers and like these um, like layers of hell almost and like layers of bureaucracy like convolute and make opaque that connection in a sense because they're like these you know uh, paper pushers and all these people in between so to speak you know almost like a kafka you know mm-hmm. castle a hellscape or something it's like it uh it bureaucratizes the religious process. I mean, in a sense, like that's kind of how I see just uh, like Jesus. Cause like, I kind of see Jesus in this way, like Nietzsche and light where it's like, or the way that Nietzsche kind of places Jesus as like, Jesus was the only Christian who died on the cross. And like, there's kind of like an unrepeatability even to attempting to, to be a Christian almost, or like an impossibility right. to it. Um, and then everything that happens after, like you were saying, like in Luke or something, it's kind of like, okay, and that's when the bureaucracy comes in and all these fucking people start to like, bring put pull it into the weeds basically Um, right yeah and you see a lot of the condemnations of modern living 
that come from the church that are pretty regressive, those come from the letters of Paul. They don't come from Christ. Mm-hmm. Because right. the amount of forgiveness in Christ in the Gospels is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. There is it's it 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 when you really read the Gospels with even the historical context, which I think everyone should do, whether you want to be a believer or not, I, I highly recommend reading the Gospels and reading annotated understandings of the Gospels and reading people's opinions of the Gospels. But when you really read that and you 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 begin to open up to a world in which Forgiveness is almost infinite, infinite, yeah. and sin and uh, uh, dereliction and um, all of you know incumbent vices out there are finite and limited and limiting. Mm-hmm. And and so really, the it's almost like you know forgiveness has a virtue quality that almost transcends virtue because every virtue has its incumbent vice, right? Like, for instance. Right. You know, if you can be, for instance, uh, either a cruel penny pincher or, you know, you can be someone who's good with money. It's it's virtuous to be good with money. It's not that virtuous to be like Ebenezer Scrooge. So, uh, but, but forgiveness doesn't have that exactly. The, the, the kind of Christ-like forgiveness, it doesn't have that. It's Mm -hmm. one of the, I mean, it's such an important thing that it's mentioned in the Lord's prayer explicitly, you know. The forgiveness of the transgressions or the debts that you owe other people. And then you will be forgiven for your transgressions. And, and right. it's like a cyclical thing, you know, those who yeah. transgressed against you. Um, so, yeah, it, it's almost like there's a point to the inferno where you're seeing that like the, the hypocrisy, the bureaucracy, all those things. And there's a great scene. I forget which fucking ring they're in but there's a great scene where there's a dead gentleman who whose son dante knows and he doesn't know whether his son is dead or alive and so he asks dante how he is and that's the scene where dante essentially just says well it seems like you have a lot of information in what has transpired before and maybe even you have information on what can transpire in the future, but you seem to be completely gray about the present. And that seems like a really great explanation of hell to be forever dwelling upon these small histories. I think this guy in particular died in some minor uprising in Florentine politics. And he wants to know, you know, whether his son had also been killed or whether he's, and if he's dead and he's not in the inferno, then he's probably in a better place. And he didn't know that he was still alive. And so that whole idea of that, like myop- myopathy or myopicism, where you, where you just you can't see the now, you can't see the crucial. You can only endlessly dissect the history and then endlessly speculate about the future. That does seem pretty hellish. Totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's like a there's like a metaphysical, metaphorical like digging in the past, and it's kind of like you can keep digging yourself, like all the way through you know it's gonna it's like almost what creates the like cycle or something you know like like this like process i guess or like you know the eternal recurrence kind of idea you know and, and as opposed to uh, breaking that cycle of sacrificial like necessity or whatever um, yeah like with the girardi kind of you know scapegoat mechanism kind of idea there um but yeah right. cause it's always because you're always trying to instrumentalize the past to do something in the future 
you know what I mean? It's always like, okay, well, what happens so that I can do something in the future, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously, I think, a noble and worthy pursuit. And like, again, it's like, why, you know, you have to historically, uh, like you say, whether or not you're reading the gospels or whatever, I think that, I think history is like one of the most important, like left out aspects of current stuff, obviously. And people say that all the time, but you know, it's just, I mean, it's, it is so important, but on the, on the other hand, I mean, it's like the Nietzschean ideas, like the uses and abuses of history, you know what I mean? And, and recognizing mm-hmm. that history isn't, you know, a set of facts. It's a narrativization. It's an artistic act, you know, and that yeah. then, then, then you, then you're realizing like a word self-consciousness or self-awareness. You're like, okay, so I'm kind of creating my own narrative that I can like abide by or, you know, uh, like retcon the narrative so that what happens in the future can, can be oriented in whatever direction. But, but I think right. that about living in the now is more giving it up in a sense, maybe, but not giving it up or like letting go in a way that is, is uh, nihilistically passive, I guess, but mm-hmm. somehow is, you know, I guess, in alignment with grace. And I guess that's like I said, it's kind of a, it's an incredibly hard mystery to unwrap and, if you had clear vision in the present, you would be like the character Cassandra from Greek mythology who knew the correct answer to everything, knew the correct vision direction people should take because of being able to see, I think in some limited sense, the future or whatever, but no one believed her. Her mm-hmm. She was cursed to be forever like d- doubted when she had the right idea. And there's certainly uh, there's certainly a relationship there in contemporary society where the people who are correct about recognizing the problems of the present um, are almost always looked at as quacks and, you know, maniacs when, you know, I mean, I remember environmentalists in the nineties were dismissed as just like hippie quacks and shit. And now we're literally talking about the world being on fire, like every day in the mainstream discourse because it fucking is. And they were right then. And now to have an environmental position from the nineties, you would almost be seen as quaint mm-hmm. um, it, among thinking people. I'm not talking about conservative right-wing people. I'm talking about among thinking people. <laughs> um, I did just look it up out of interest. Um, uh, Cause I wanted to return to this a little bit. So I looked this up and uh, the political corruption complaint against Dante did result in his exile. So he was punished for that, which is why this oh, is okay. such a big deal for him, for people who actually do it. And he brings in a a comparison here where he has like the Benedictine monks who uh, have like sort of hooded like arraignment, adornment, what you would say, Mm -hmm. raiment, raiment and adornment. Um, He has the hypocrite essentially wearing that kind of religious outfit in in the eighth circle of hell, I believe it is. I'm just going through some old notes I had from like many years ago. So <laughs> that's like the shrouded figure though, that, that is alluded right. to kind of. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, and it's talking about like, okay, so you adorn yourself in the most beautiful way. And what Christ compared that to, and the reason why this is con- present in, in Dante is because it goes back to the gospels In the gospel of Matthew, Christ spoke about the tombs of the Pharisees. And in the tombs of the Pharisees, you have, um, you have, tombs which are uh immaculate on the outside gorgeous like works of like you know um architectural uh, high architectural achievement for the time yeah like exquisite gold right exquisite but then on the inside is just dust and bones which can never walk again and that's what christ compared mm-hmm. the hypocrisy 
of those who were in the upper echelons yeah. of the political religious world as it's just you have all the pomp and circumstance but at the end you have death it's death it's a dead end mm-hmm. it doesn't go anywhere and and so that's a pretty pretty significant point there uh to talk about what to do in the political world which is a large reason why when i was out there gathering signatures i was wearing my old sneakers i didn't have a suit on or anything uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I no, I definitely get you there. Totally. I mean, it's, I mean, that speaks to immediate concerns, right? It's like, again, about living in the present. What's the point of the opulence of, um, I mean, I guess Bataille or like George Bataille or kind of this, mm-hmm. those kind of ideas like this is the accursed share, as it's called, right? This kind of what do, what of accumulated energy capital. You cut out there for a uh, minute. Opulence. I want to hear what you're saying. Repeat that, please, because they cut out. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, the accursed share. Do Fuck. With, you know, the sun rains down. Fuck. I don't know why it's doing it on your end. Sure. Are you far away from your? Uh, are you far away from your router? No. I didn't. We might have. I didn't do anything. We might have to do this on Zoom eventually. Uh, we're probably going to cut all these parts here. But um, if anyone is actually listening, sorry yeah, about yeah. this, guys. One more time, please. I, I really want to hear this. <laughs> okay. Um, it's this idea called the accursed share. And it's like, um, you know, what do you, what do, how do human societies deal with this? Like the, the energetic and, you know, money and materials, the accumulation that the, the processes that take place. And, you know, and, and then like, you know, his examples of like Aztecs and, you know, these kind of like massive displays of wastage and mm-hmm. like destruction in the name of uh, right. sacrifice, basically, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, um, but contrasting that with like this what, kind of what I feel like you're saying in terms of just like why what is the point of this opulence and this wastage of so, so otherwise precious materials or are they really precious or what I mean it kind of calls into value even their value as such but um, you know using these things on this this essentially you know wasted mm-hmm. dead end that is it's, it's really just a, it becomes then just a something from the past that is like a, a form of um, almost like oppression in the sense of just being like a something you can't shake, you know, because now it's just there forever. It's this monument. It's a, it, right. It looms over everything. Yeah, it, it. It's wasted effort, but it's wasted effort that you are literally building a monument of, and it's what you will be known for. Mm-hmm. It's like that because of Watchmen so many times repeated from Shelley's Ozymandias about the two trunkless legs in in the desert and the the Ozymandias being the name for Ramses the second and and you know uh look upon my works you mighty in despair and his works are literally just destroyed by the desert of time because he lived a life that was only mm-hmm. built on like power and you know for the ancient Egyptians power corruption uh really god religio- gods and religiosity these were all the same thing that the institutions were all tied to the pharaonic right. image of the pharaoh um and that is you know the way uh shelley articulated that in that poem ozymandias which is the greek name for ramses ii again um that is really kind of exactly what we're talking about and there's something that I think would be worth reading for the next chapter of this. Um, 
the most Greek book in the Catholic Bible is the Book of Wisdom. It is very much influenced by Greek. It it it, it is a confluence of Judeo Greek thinking. I, I'm I'll, you'll never catch me saying Judeo Christian because that's something that right wingers say uh, to influence people with small brains about the you know that that the vast history of human achievement can be you know funneled down into two little things, but. Um, yeah, right. Uh, that's some Ben Shapiro shit. We don't want that on this podcast. That's bad faith. <laughs> Get out of here. But the Book of Wisdom is something that exists in a weird space because it's not necessarily recognized, as far as I'm aware, it's not necessarily recognized um, amongst most of the uh, Jewish sects. And most Christian sects don't recognize it, but it is a time capsule. Uh, written in the eighth century or so before Christ was alive, that captures a lot of Greco Jewish thinking. There, there's a lot of Greek philosophy in there if you if you look into it. And there's a great part. It's right before the beginning of chapter two, and the heading is "The Wicked Reject Immortality and Justice Alike." And so maybe if you could read that, we could discuss it perhaps next time because it it, it definitely ties into. Mm-hmm what we're talking about. And if you read that particular passage, it's like a horror novel. It, it seems like all really good stuff is happening, but then it turns out the protagonist is evil <laughs> and he turns on you. And it, it really does it, uh, it cool. in, a, in a good, it, it's, it's, it's quite sneaky. And, and there's just, there is, when the heel turn comes, it really hits you. Um, and, and nice. that's kind of, no, yeah. And that's kind out. of what we're talking about here because we're talking about sort of the pomposity of people the pomposity of these mm-hmm. these political figures in in, in uh, the Florentine world of the Middle Ages, and we're talking about the pomposity of these biblical fe- characters that that Christ interacted with, and all of that pomp and circumstance really just funnels down to dried bones and and death and emptiness. Yeah, certainly, and I mean I. And I'm thinking now, right, like who are the most pompous and, uh, you know, just just like, like me and people like there was some other word you just used that was, was more accurate. But I mean, people like Elon Musk and stuff like this. I mean, they're just there's talking on the shit they say is just like this uh, po- uh, hubristic yeah. is what I was trying to think of. Um, they're people with the most insanely mm-hmm. hubristic uh, goals and sense of self-destiny or whatever. And then and they're just out there being incredibly mm-hmm. pompous like they're you know they know what they're doing they're like or they're, they're stupid enough to like not know enough but they're smart enough to know what they're doing in a weird way you know what i mean and it's kind of just like uh i feel like it's a, an analogy in the sense of just like there's these people and but they're they're actually trying to become immortal mm-hmm. right like they in a or that's the hope like kind of talked about they're just they're so plastic they're so you know like i, I find it so odd how you know zuckerberg and like uh, Bezos and these guys like how their skin is also perfect and how they care so much about you know like the, main, the maintaining of their body you know uh, as opposed to kind of like old old school to generations of rich people and just like you know just being a fat asshole and not giving <laughs> shit yeah you know? yeah which back then by the that way kind of was a... considered the height of beauty like if, if you could pull off a Henry VIII <laughs> sure, and I guess, you, oh yeah. this dude's fat this dude's fat in the in the 16th century yeah. how the fuck is this guy fat in the 16th <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah. exactly yeah no yeah so i guess it's i guess the signs and sim- the signaling can change over time depending on yeah what's considered to be good or totally. whatever yeah but 
but similarly, I mean, it's yeah, they're just there's there's such extremes um, in their hubris. I feel like that it's just like uh, that's how I feel like with just you know that's this kind of it's kind of a runaway feedback thing. It's kind of like what's accelerationism or whatever. You know, these kinds of things are just like how does this get out of hand so much? It's just it's a runaway system feedback loop at this point. You, you know. know what I mean? One thing that I hear a lot from people who are irreligious, which I certainly was for a large part of my life, I was never an atheist, but I was irreligious for a long time. And one thing I certainly hear from people who are also straight up atheists, which is they say that the idea of hell is essentially heaven and hell are essentially fairy tales to convince you that there is some kind of justice that can be dished out after the world. So because guys like Elon Musk, yeah, they can be fucking massive dickheads and also make two million dollars, two billion dollars. He made two billion dollars in profit last week and while being an insufferable dickhead, like somebody who if he was in your personal like like social circle, at best, you'd tell him to fuck off. At worst, you'd try to like trick him into falling off a cliff, you know. you, you would you would try to trick him into falling into a fucking like open manhole and and, and like mm-hmm. they and they don't seem to ever face any consequence for it and so i often hear right, from people right. on yeah that oh that's all that heaven and hell is it's just like makes you want to feel like the good people end up getting to the right place eventually and the bad people and blah 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 but like you can invert that and say okay maybe it's a fantasy but it's also a fucking warning and for most of literature it's a warning if you you don't see too yeah. many fairy tales i mean so much as you do in literature what you see more of is like the the jacob marley is it marley or marlow i think it's jacob marley and ebenezer scrooge scrooge relationship where he's like dude i'm fucking in chains in hell don't do this you know uh mm-hmm. dante's inferno is a series of pretty explicit warnings of like what not to do and how not to behave. And he, you know, he right. wrote it when he was about our age, if you were to take the average between our two ages. Because the whole idea was he was at the mm-hmm. center point between old age. Now, his life was, was cut down yeah, exactly. prematurely because of the stresses of the exile that he was thrown into unjustly. So he didn't actually sure. make it to 72 or whatever. But that's that idea, right. too, of living to about the Jesus age, 33 Jesus lived to about 33 and a third, which for those of you who are really into the weird conspiracy stuff, that's what records best play at for long form. Um, <laughs> Carl Jung famously said that one of the problems with Europeans is that they don't have a psychological model for how to mature into old age because their main, their main dude, their main model <laughs> died at 33. Um, yeah. So, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, all those sorts of things. Um, but it, it, so you have to consider this like as a series of warnings as well, more so than just, it, it's not just revenge porn. <laughs> that's the worst yeah, way. Right. That's like what that, that's just Nietzsche's. Yeah. That's like Nietzsche's, uh, I would say like very exoteric cheek, right? It's like the, the resentment of the right. slave morality that, you know, basically and we'll get our just dessert next time. Because, you know, like, hey, yeah. dude, if I was, if, I would kick your ass right now. But, you know, it's, and it's like, yeah. it's, and then under the guise of I'm turning the right. other cheek or whatever. It, uh, a cowardice, a cowardice, you know, you know, kind of hiding beneath this, like, wolf or something or something, like, clothing. Which is exactly uh, wrong. I mean, he, it's, it's almost, it's uniquely yeah, totally. exactly wrong. 
exactly it's almost so so wrong as to be that's what makes me skeptical of the argument or like at least in the sense of like whether or not people who say it believe in it or whatever but it's like it it undoes itself in a weird way you know by being such an anti-theoretical yeah. like position it like it gets it gets re-subsumed into the synthesis yeah and i feel like that was probably by design all also by the way if we ever end up doing a, yeah. a nietzsche episode can we call it eke no homo <laughs> if we're yeah, gonna definitely. do internet culture or definitely. whatever um yeah what is that sounds good I, i'd love to do well I, i'd love that too because this episode again has been kind of more in my wheelhouse a bit and again this is just from memory and I, I really i can't wait for you to read it and to have your take on it too because i feel like when it becomes your wheelhouse we get you know, I, I'll learn some things, certainly. But mm-hmm. the Nietzsche thing, Nietzsche is definitely out no, of my wheelhouse. Nietzsche is definitely somebody who I had a passing relationship with when I was a teenager. And as an adult, outside of conversations with you, I've never really had much of... My Nietzschean discourse comes from people who are influenced by Nietzsche, mostly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which takes all different kinds of stripes, right? I mean, there's, there's so many different versions. That's, that's the thing that makes, makes Nietzsche so complicated, mm-hmm. I feel like many different trends, trends uh you know means of interpreting well it. yeah i mean anything that can lead you to a land that c- uh, covers anything from existentialism to adolf hitler is pretty fucking vast i would think <laughs> yeah right can you imagine being an existential Definitely. nazi well <laughs> <laughs> i mean i mean that's kind of like younger or something maybe like i don't know maybe i haven't read enough younger but i feel like they probably were there <laughs> it's such an interesting time too we're just reading about the, the cast of characters like pre pre nazism taking its like, yeah. form just kind of the weird intellectual not intellectual hotbed in like a sense of like the renaissance mm-hmm. but uh a very interesting conflagration of bizarro conspiratorial race science science pseudo by the way i have to just i have to step in real you know, quick and just, just point out i just said can you imagine being an existential nazi and that is heidegger erasure I, that's that's a good point i was gonna say that because they're a big one of those i said yeah. that as if martin heidegger <laughs> literally didn't exist uh yeah that's that's the yeah, good sorry guys there. no but um but uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like this is probably a good place to wrap up just because we're, we're tapping on the door of a lot of yeah. different things kind of that we should probably uh, treat with a little bit more time and patience. But I think that was a good, a good intro. Yeah, I agree entirely. And uh, like I said, Book of Wisdom, chapter, right before chapter two, The Wicked Reject, Immortality, and Justice Alike. I can send you a link. Read it. It's, it's worth okay. trying to understand the synthesis between or attempted synthesis between the, the Greek philosophical school and the deep 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 well of fucking jewish rabbinical thinking mm-hmm. uh, and it's yeah that's something i've been reading a lot about too it's very 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 interesting but um all right man, i'll let you go you say you're gonna maybe go camping uh, yeah i'm gonna go I'm, I'm thinking i might although um well that's a funny thing because despite covid there's a bunch of like campgrounds that are full up or closed right now. So it's like, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm right. not going to go like backpacking. It would be like a evening trip. I happen to live in a rural mm-hmm. area where there's a lot of really pretty places you can go. So, yeah, but I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm crazy. I wish I could do a river dip. Ooh, it's been good this year. Let me tell you, it's been, it's been pretty satisfying. You, you can't beat it. Yeah. Nice. All right, buddy. Always a pleasure. All right, man.
Indeed. Likewise, I'll talk to you soon.